Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. You know, uh, I think COVID has changed our perspective on things a little bit. We've, we've kind of actually gone to a place of, uh, of wondering if things will ever end, right? There's just kind of, uh, the, we've talked often about the weather and wonder if the dry spell will ever end. And then, of course, it rains like crazy. And then we wonder if the wet spell will ever end. Uh, we often kind of uh, come, I think, to church and wonder if a sermon's ever going to end. Uh, and usually it does, but at least until today it did. What have you thought that has maybe been changed here, but what have you thought is going to last forever? Like have you ever actually sort of pinned your, your hopes, put something in, uh, in, in gear for something that you thought was going to last forever? What seems to you to have the kind of staying power that looks like it will last forever? How about a big company? How about Microsoft or one of the oil companies, they're not going to last. Let's think bigger. How about Canada? Is Canada going to last? No, not, not really. History has proved over and over again that no empire lasts forever. There's only one thing in this world right now that is truly going to last for eternity, and that's people. God made us that way, to be that way. And God says, while you're operating within the bounds of time on earth, you've got a very serious, a critical choice to make. Easily when you consider it like this, it's the most important decision that you will ever face, that you will ever make in your life. For the Bible says that each of us has only two choices of where we will choose to spend eternity, heaven or hell. And there's lots of jokes out there about hell, and virtually all of them try to lighten the prospect rather than paint it as the Bible truly does. A place of unrelenting torment, perpetual aloneness in the dark, solitary confinement forever, from which there is never any relief or possibility of escape. The other choice, of course, is heaven. And the Bible is equally clear on how wonderful it is and how you go about choosing it as your eternal destination. It's by putting your faith, your hope, your love in Jesus. He is the way, he tells us, the truth and the life. It's trusting him with all of, our, all of, all of ourselves, asking him to forgive us, to take leadership of our lives, to be our Lord and choosing to follow him. S.I. McMillan, in his book, None of, These, None of These Diseases, tells the story of a young woman who wanted to go to college, but her heart sank when she read the question on the application form for the college that asked, are you a leader? Being both honest and conscientious, she wrote, no, and returned the application, expecting, of course, the worst. To her surprise, she received this letter from the college. Dear applicant, a study of the application forms reveals that this year our college will have 1,452 new leaders. We are accepting you because we feel it is imperative that they have at least one follower. (laughs) Which brings us to where we left off last weekend. 
For the past couple of months, we've been working through the basics of why Southland exists, what it is that we believe God has given us as a church, as a purposeful mission, to love God, love people, be discipled, and make disciples. We've been going back to basics as a church to help us remain consistent in our pursuit of being devoted disciples of Christ, followers, apprentices of Jesus. So last week we embarked on a short two-week journey through the Gospels to discover what Jesus says it means to be one of his disciples. And we looked last week at three of his key statements regarding that, and I'm just going to review them really briefly. If you weren't here, you can unpack them more, of course, by checking out last week's message. Number one, to be disciples, we must spend time with Jesus. In John chapter 12, he says, anyone who wants to be my disciple must follow me because my servants must be where I am. And if they follow me, the Father will honor them. <clears throat> Excuse me. And secondly, number two, to be a disciple, we must love Jesus supremely. If anyone wants to be my follower, you must love me far more than your own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, or sisters. Yes, more than your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And third, to be disciples, we must love others. Jesus said in John 13, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And we looked at then, therefore, the hallmark of being one of, of Jesus' followers is that you actually, we actually love one another. And so by extension, we also took that to mean we cannot be disciples or be a disciple by ourselves. We were put on this planet to be with others. You can't love others if there's no others, right? We were put on this planet to help each other, to be in relationship with people, because life, in essence, is all about love. To be devoted disciples, therefore, we must spend time with Jesus, we must love him supremely, and we must love others. These are the marks of discipleship, and we move on today to number four. Jesus says if we want to be a disciple, we must always do what Jesus tells us to do. This is a mark of a disciple. According to what Jesus tells us, following means obeying. As a dad, I get this. Father's Day is that one time of the year when I get complete obedience from every member of my family. I tell them not to spend a lot of money on me, and they don't. Following Jesus means obeying. It may not make sense, whatever that is. It may not be popular, but it's always the right thing because God's not going to steer us in the wrong direction, is he? If he tells us to do something, it's always the right thing to do. He's saying that one of the marks of discipleship is we must obey him continually. If you continue to obey my teaching, you are truly my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is a particularly well-known phrase from the Bible, and those of you who have heard my testimony know that it is the single phrase from the Bible that God used to set me free and cause me to turn my life over to him. The phrase, the truth will set you free, it truly has set me free. We often don't hear, though, the first part of that passage of that verse. He says, if you continue to obey my teaching, then you're truly my disciples. 
He's saying here there's four things about this that are vitally important to being a fully devoted disciple of Christ. The first thing I want you to notice is that it is an ongoing process. It's going to take the rest of your life to complete. It's one of those things that you never actually get to say, been there, seen it, done it. He says, if you continue, it's a process, it's ongoing. Being a disciple is not, I went to a class, I got the certificate, therefore I am. No, it's a process. It's developmental, it's incremental, it's gradual. And it's going to take the rest of your life. 75 minutes on a weekend is not enough because we simply forget things. Which, by the way, is why it's a good idea to take notes when you're uh, hearing something because the shortest pencil is longer than the longest memory. If you take notes, you can go home and review it again. Discipleship, you see, is meant to be an ongoing process. Second, notice that it's measured by obedience. He says, if you continue to obey my teaching, then you're my disciples. It's not based on how much you know, therefore. It's, not, it's on how much you practice it, how much you're willing to do it, how much you obey. There are a lot of people who know the Bible, but they don't, they don't live it. Sometimes you can meet people who are veritable storehouses sometimes of biblical knowledge. Yet they're the most cranky, cantankerous, argumentative, judgmental people going. Because the Bible says, if you just think it's knowledge, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The more knowledge you have, the tendency is the more arrogant you can become. If you don't have love, if you don't think and move forward with a humble attitude. So God says, I don't measure your discipleship by how much you know, I measure it by how much you love how much you love others, how much you love me, and how much you obey. It's been said that we only believe the parts of the Bible that we truly actually are willing and do act on. We may say we believe, but if we don't do it, then we're actually just talking about it and not actually believing. Do we believe, for instance, that you should forgive the people who hurt you? Well, yes. Well, do we do it? Do we believe that you should always return good for evil? Yes. Do we do it? Do you believe we should tithe? Yes. Do we do it? Do we believe we should share our faith with other people? Yes. Do we do it? No? Then we don't actually put it into practice. We're not actually proving that we believe it. We only believe the part that we actually are willing and able and actually do. So we have to practice it. Being a disciple is an ongoing process measured by obedience to God's word. That, that's the third thing this verse teaches us. If you continue to obey my teaching, there are lots of books out there you can read that are fabulous books. They may be positive, motivational. They may teach you skills that you don't otherwise have. But it's not human ideas that are going to help you become a fully devoted disciple. It's not philosophy, pop psychology that's going to teach you to be a devoted disciple. It's the truth that will take you there. It's the truth that will set you free. We must feed on the truth. It's soul food. We believe the Bible is God's word to us, 
given to us and the unique, full, and final authority on all matters of faith and practice. It was written by human authors under the supernatural guidance of the Holy Spirit and as such is the truth without any mixture of error. That's the Bible part, but then comes the functionality of it all. The Bible cannot just be a book that we pick up once a week and then put it back on the shelf. It must be part of who we are. We must actually live it out in our lives functionally, daily, to reach the vision of discipleship that God has for us. The call is to full obedience to God. There is no wiggle room here. Jesus said you cannot be half-hearted. You cannot sit on the fence on this one. You are either committing yourself to pursuing this kind of obedience or you're not. No, now keep in mind that these are goals, right? This is a process. It's a vision of what we're to become devoted disciples. This is not about perfection. It's about a process, but it's also not a license to give up when our obedience wavers or we slip and fall. It's rather an encouragement to get back up, confess, repent, and move forward. If you want deep, personal, satisfying peace, peace of mind, peace of heart, peace of soul, you've got to surrender control of your life totally to God. How do you know if you've done that? The evidence is simple. Evidence of a surrendered life is always obedience. When God says, do it, we do it. We don't care if we don't understand it. We don't care if anybody else is doing it. We don't care if it's possible. We don't care if there's somebody who's gonna persecute us because of it. We don't care if it's hard. We don't care if it's easy. We do it simply because God said, do it, right? Neil Martin, a member of the British Parliament, was once giving a group of his constituents a guided tour of the Houses of Parliament in London. During the course of the visit, the group happened to meet Lord Hailsham, who was then the Lord Chancellor. Now, the Lord Chancellor is always dressed up in these fancy robes and wearing all the regalia of his office. He comes upon the tour group, and he recognizes his friend Neil Martin among the group, and he cries, Neil! Not daring to question or disobey the command, the entire tour group promptly fell to their knees. <laughs> if God says do it in his word, whether it makes sense to me from a human standpoint, I should do it because I'm surrendered to his control. When we listen to his word and follow his direction, what's the result of that? It's, the, it's always the same. It's peace. It's, it's internal peace. Those who love your instruction have great peace and don't stumble. Today you may be in, in an uncontrollable circumstance. You may be experiencing an unexplainable problem. But the good news is, in the midst of all of that, you can have the peace of God in your life. Now think about this. Many of you know the story of Jonah. God asked him to go to the city of Nineveh and speak to the people there about him. Jonah has a thing about the Ninevites. So he disobeys God and runs in the opposite direction as fast and as hard as he can. That leads to a misadventure and a whale of problems for Jonah, but being swallowed by that whale gives him an idea and he swallows his pride and he prays, <clears throat> excuse me, and God has him 
literally like thrown up onto the beach. You'd think that would have set Jonah's heart right, right? He would be all over this, like, I can't wait to get to Nineveh. Uh, not so much. But he obeys. He grows, albeit grudgingly, to Nineveh because he's afraid and he knows what's going to happen when they hear the good news about God. And of course, the city, <clears throat> wow, excuse me. Of course, the city turns to God. Jonah was used in a powerful way because of his obedience to God, even though his heart wasn't in it. Do you see that? Jonah was used in a powerful way because of his obedience to God, even though his heart wasn't in it. For us, when we respond to God's promptings, it's so important to know that we're doing it to obey, first and foremost. Feelings may or may not follow, but we're to obey. It's not the other way around. The tough part of that is where this goes. And intuitively, we kind of start to go down this path. It's the next thing. When God begins to head you where he wants you to go, this is one of the reasons we're afraid to begin in the first place here. Once we start reading his word, once we start understanding the instructions that we're supposed to obey, as Jesus says, you read my word, you need to obey and repent. They go together, you see. Obedience to Christ often involves a change in direction. What's a change in direction? Repentance. Repentance is turning around, going the other direction. When Jesus writes to his church and says, obey and repent, he's expressing to us the obedience, that obedience is often going to involve a new direction in life. Remember, I've said to you already, be careful when God agrees with the direction you're going, right? Be really careful about that. In all likelihood, if God speaks into your life, it involves a change in direction, his way rather than your way. That's what the word repentance means. Turn around, have a new direction in life. The fourth thing this verse teaches us is about being set free. The truth will set us free. As a disciple, you're gonna be set free from the net of sin that entangles you. You're gonna be set free from the expectations of others. You're gonna be set free from past memories that bother you. You're gonna be set free from guilt. You'll be set free from resentment. You're gonna be set free from bad habits. You're set free from shame. You're set free from the presence and the stresses of other people trying to put things on you, force things on you. You're free from fear, from anxiety, from worry, from insecurity. The truth sets you free. And that's what our set free experience is all about, isn't it? Hopefully so many this past weekend down in Latin and South America have experienced that as well. The glory of God is a human being fully alive, fully devoted, a devoted disciple of Christ. A disciple because the people who are the most fully alive in life are those who love Jesus the most who love other people the most, who obey the word of God because it's his word strictly to you to obey. The fifth qualification to be a disciple of Jesus, we must be willing to pay the price. Jesus said in Matthew 16, if anyone comes, wants to be my disciple, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Being a disciple, obviously then, therefore, means sacrifice. Why? Because it's all about love, you see. And the essence of love is giving, isn't it? The essence of love is sacrifice. If you've never had to sacrifice for anyone, you don't know the deeper levels of love. 
Genuine love is always sacrificial. You cannot love somebody, you cannot love God without sacrificing. It takes a sacrifice of time, a sacrifice of energy, sometimes a sacrifice of money or material things to love. If you can show me how to love without sacrificing those things, sign me up. I just don't think you can. Love always requires sacrifice. It's the secret of a good marriage. Both the husband and the wife must continually be intentionally making big and small sacrifices for each other. There's never a marriage problem when you're sacrificing for each other. There's never a power struggle in your marriage when you're truly trying to outdo each other in sacrificing for each other, giving to each other. I often tell couples when they're getting married, if you can get into a giving contest with each other, watch out. The world will beat a path to your door to figure out how, you, how things are going so well for you. See, that's what real love is. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. It's the essence of love. It's a sacrifice. God so loved the world that he gave. And God's already done it for you. Once for all time, he came to remove sin. How? By his own death as a sacrifice. Live a life, therefore, of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice for God. If you want to learn to be like Jesus, if you want to be one of his disciples, if you truly want to live the better life, you're going to have to learn to sacrifice. Giving it all up for the benefit of somebody else. Love is not evidenced at all in getting. Love is evidenced in giving. We learn to sacrifice for God's purposes because he first sacrificed for us. We must deny ourselves, the verse says as well. What does that mean? It means I say, God, I'm putting my agenda on the shelf and I'm going to rather follow your agenda for my life. Not my plan anymore, not my will, your will, your plan. Not my purpose for my life, your purpose for my life. We must make this a daily habit if you just deny yourself every once in a while, the other times, what are you doing then? Well, you're self-serving like everybody else. Self-denial is not one grand decision or gesture once for all. It's a daily decision of small, often very painful choices in which I choose to put others, God's will, ahead of my own. This is radical because it goes against everything our society is telling us. Express yourself, assert yourself, indulge yourself. Jesus says, no, 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 deny yourself, take up your cross, sacrifice. See, it's also an act of service. As a disciple, we are to sacrifice our own agenda in favor of serving others unselfishly. God says it's not all taking in, it's giving back. The Bible says if you want to be a disciple, you must take the last place. You must be the servant of everyone else. That's about the most countercultural statement you could make in Canada today. God is saying that the kingdom of God values are the exact opposite of the world's values in which we live. The world's value says it's all about me, I'll do it my way, I actually deserve this. I've got to look out for numero uno, number one. 
The world says you're more important than anybody else, so take care of yourself. That's the way to a miserable life. Instead, God says, give your life away. The world's value system says everybody should be serving you. And Jesus says, no, it's not how many people serve you, but how many people you serve. The world says, live for yourself. God says, give your life away. God wired the universe that the only way your life takes on significance, the only way you actually find real fulfillment is if you give your life away. Why? Because God wants us to be more and more like him, unselfish. The most miserable people in life are self-centered. It's all about me. I'm living for me, my pleasure, my needs, my comfort. It's all about me, what I deserve, what I need. And that's the way to be completely miserable. The happiest people, rather, in life are those who choose to give their lives away. They're serving others. Whether they've got money or possessions really doesn't have any significance whatsoever. Their significance gives them their satisfaction in that they're serving others. They're giving their life away. The value comes in having been chosen by Christ and then giving your life away. So he says, give your life away. Who's our model for this? Well, of course, Jesus. For even I, the Son of Man, came here not to be served, but to serve others. If anybody ever had a deserve, if anybody ever had a right to say, uh, I'm the king here, people, and you should be serving me, it would have been Jesus, right? But he says, for even I, the Son of Man, came here not to be served, but to serve others and give my life away as a ransom for many. I came to serve. I came to give. That's who we're following. That defines discipleship. And the great thing is, the more you serve, the more you give, the happier, actually, you're going to be. The more fulfilled you're going to be. Because when you do that, God says, you're being more like me. You're getting it. You'll understand the blessing that comes from that. Then it says to take up your cross. Well, that's been talked about a lot, and it means perhaps a lot of things and sacrifice and things we talked about, but I think take up your cross literally means to be willing to sacrifice for good and for God, and even if it means, yes, even if it means sacrificing your own life, because the cross was an instrument of death. Only God can turn an instrument of death into something positive, can't he? The cross is a symbol of torture. Today, we don't fully understand what it means to take up our cross because the cross has lost some of the horror for us. When you took up your cross in those days, you were taking it to the site where you were going to be crucified. You were going to die. It was an instrument of horror, of torture. It was a device for capital punishment, extreme cruelty, extremely painful. We don't even have an equivalent today like that. Anything you could say we do today is hardly in the same league as this idea of crucifixion. But God took that cross and he turned it into something positive. That's what the cross does in our lives. Jesus says, I'll take the negatives in your life 
the minuses, and I'll make up for them by what I did on the cross and turn your negatives into a positive. I'll turn your negative life into a positive one. I'll take the negative things in your life away and you can live on positively. Take up your cross means being willing to die, willing to suffer, even die for Christ. We haven't been asked to do that in Canada. Thank you, Lord. But all around the world, people are being asked daily to do this. Do you know they now estimate on the average, 90,000 believers a year are killed for their faith. That's an average. 90,000 a year around the world give their lives for Christ every year. They were willing to give the ultimate sacrifice. Being a disciple comes with a cost. Salvation is free, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, but discipleship will cost you your life. And there's one more thing. Jesus said, if you're going to be his disciple, we're going to spend time with him. We're going to love him supremely. We've got to love everybody else in the church. We've got to obey him continually. We've got to serve others unselfishly. And to be a disciple, we must pass on the good news. When we hear the good news and it becomes ours, when we put up in front of our door, good news are us, we're not supposed to tuck it away somewhere. We're supposed to tell somebody else about it. Full circle back to where we started a week ago. One day, Jesus is walking down the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, brothers and cousins, back fishing again. They're professional fishermen. In those days, you didn't fish with a rod and reel, of course. You fished with a net. Jesus calls out to them, come, follow, be my disciples, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and went with him. What's he mean by that? I'll show you how to change lives is what he's saying. I'll show you how to bring people to me. I'll show you how to share this good news. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You can have it. You were fishermen. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Then the corollary is somewhat disturbing. And that is if we're not fishing for men... Are we following? He says, if you follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. If we're not fishing, are we following? Is anybody going into heaven because of us? If you're not fishing, you're not following. If you're not telling it to someone else, you're not being a disciple. God expects each one of us to pass the good news on. If I knew a cure for cancer, or if I had the vaccine for COVID-19 and kept it a secret, they should throw me in prison and throw away the key. It's criminal to know something as beneficial as that, to have some good news like that and not share it, right? I know something better than a vaccine, and so do you. How to have your past forgiven. How to find real purpose in living. And how to know that there is an eternal home waiting for you in heaven. God calls us to share this good news. Paul's talking to his apprentice, Timothy. And he says, you have heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses, Timothy. Now, now Timothy, here's your job. Teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. You're going to go to heaven because somebody told you, right? Is the chain going to stop then with you? Somebody told you somehow, somewhere, sometime? 
and you made a decision, but now it stops with you? Is anybody going to be linking arms with you in heaven, thanking God for you? Christianity is, has been said to always be one generation away from annihilation. In other words, it takes each one of us to pass it on. If we all decided not to pass it on, where does it go? If you don't tell somebody who's going to be there, Jesus says to be a disciple, you must be a passer on of the good news. Jesus' last words, in fact, his last instructions to his followers echo this. And they were about, of course, people. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Pay attention, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. This is the final and last word, and it means something. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is what it is to be a devoted disciple of Christ. Saying that we want to walk fully in Christ's footsteps, having our steps just kind of mirror his, following right behind him in, his, in, in the footsteps that he leaves, just walking with him every moment of the day, fully devoted to him, sharing the good news with everyone, everywhere, whatever it takes. See, we have marching orders. We don't need to really sort of sit around and wonder what God would have us do. What are we supposed to do? He's given us marching orders. He's given the people of the cross marching orders. That's us, the people of faith. We are his followers. We are his church. We are the only organism in the world mandated by God to spread the message of his son's love. Government doesn't have that mandate. Industry doesn't have that mandate. Universities don't have that mandate. The mandate has been given to the church to be the proclaimers of the only message that can change the composition and the direction of a person's heart for all eternity. We must never lose hold of that fundamental commitment to articulate the message of the transforming power of Christ. It must be our unshakable, unalterable conviction throughout all the ministries of this church and every church and through every life represented here and across the world. When you get to the end of your life, you see, when you're staring death right in the face, you're not going to glory in your net worth. You're not going to ask your, your relatives to bring your bank statement to your deathbed. You're not going to glory in your social standing amongst your peers. You're not going to ask for all your trophies to be lined up at the foot of the bed. You will be utterly aware instead in those final moments of the fact that Jesus Christ died for you on the cross and he's promised you a home with him in heaven. And then you'll be flooded by feelings of gratefulness for every attempt you made throughout the course of your life to make sure your family and your friends and your kids and your neighbors and your coworkers and frankly, everyone God gives you an opportunity to share with that they're going to be there with you. You'll be so glad for every investment you made in another human being. Every time you reached out, every time you tried to take a hand that was disconnected from God and tried to connect it back again. When you're staring death in the face, people, you'll be aware of the fact <clears throat> that the only thing that goes from this side 
to the other side is people. Your houses don't, your net worth sure doesn't, your position, your achievements all left behind. None of that goes over to the other side but people. Imagine if we could just get a picture of that today. Imagine every Christ follower in this place joyfully taking the faith that beats so strongly in each of our hearts and proclaiming it creatively, sincerely, lovingly, wisely to our family and friends such that there's a steady stream of redeemed lives pouring into God's kingdom. Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. You don't use truth to beat people over the head with. It's not a gun that you fire at people. It's not a club. It's not a hammer. It's not a dagger. You stick in people and say, I hope this sticks. You do it with gentleness and respect. Some of you perhaps are thinking, I know all this. I know I need to tell my friends and coworkers, my family members about Christ, but I'm not equipped. I'm not an expert. I don't know the Bible that well. I don't have the verses memorized. I haven't been to seminary. I don't know enough to tell people about Christ. And I'm here to tell you, yes, you do. If you know him, you do. Because you simply have to share your story. You simply have to say, this is what Jesus means to me. It's your story. It's irrefutable. It's your story. What Jesus means to you. Every one of us should be able to give a reason for that hope that lies within. What Jesus means to me. We each know enough to say, Jesus loves me. Therefore, Jesus loves you. Jesus gave his life for me, therefore he gave his life for you. Jesus has forgiven me, therefore he's more than willing to forgive you. Jesus has set me free. He longs to set you free as well. We can offer that. Jesus loves you. He died for you on the cross to prove it. And God's plan is waiting to unfold in your life. People don't need our knowledge. What they need is our love. We don't argue anybody into Jesus' presence. Believe me, I have tried. Oh, have I tried. And I've been so disappointed because I thought I said it perfectly, right? We don't argue. We don't cajole. We don't somehow, you know, um, intuitively or, you know, intellectually somehow get people with Jesus. We express love for people, and in doing so, we build a bridge of love from our heart to theirs, and then we let Jesus walk them across the threshold. You don't have to be some Bible scholar to do this. We gladly participate in missions far from here, of course. We're reaching out to help our African partners in Tupendani and all over the world, frankly, even this past weekend through church renewal. And it's our honor and it's our privilege and frankly, it's our responsibility to do so when we've been blessed. But we're probably not all of us going to be the ones to physically be involved in those even close by us here, we collectively have our camp and community impact ministries. But how are we doing, each of us, personally as disciples? If people are going to be reached for Christ, stats just say, for the most part, they will not be reached by strangers. They won't be reached by televangelists. 
They won't be reached by the media and frankly not even by pastors per se in a setting such as this. They'll be reached primarily through friends. There's a sad word in the English language. It always impacts me. It's a very simple little word. word. It's the word lost. They're lost. Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. It matters to him. It matters to us. It matters that we do this. It matters because if we don't, this church or any other church that doesn't do that will tend to become inwardly focused. We'll be thinking about ourselves, about our own comfort, about our own grandiosity, about our own convenience, and inside, we start to die. It matters to every human being far from God who lies within the reach of each of us. And there are hundreds, if not thousands, of them yet who are lost, who need, who would need and would long, frankly, deep in their soul to be redeemed, to be with Christ for eternity. It matters to our Heavenly Father who gave up the very best he had, his son, to buy back human creatures that for some reason known only to him, he has chosen to love so much. It matters more than you and I can imagine that we devote ourselves to this because it lies right at the very heartbeat of who we are as a church. We are not here by accident. We've been commissioned. Until everybody knows God, really experiences and prays and hears from the God that Jesus came to reveal, we're not done here. Until everybody submits to Jesus as their functional Lord and Savior, we're not even close to being done here. Until everyone is being discipled and discipling others, we're simply not done. Until everyone is growing and fully participating in kingdom work, we're absolutely not done. In short, we're not done until Christ returns. And when he does, the time for coming to Jesus in faith will have passed. And I can tell you one thing for sure. Christ's return, that glorious day, is a day closer than it was yesterday. And that should fill us with a sense of urgency with this, for we're living in the last days. And now here's the challenge. What if each of us as disciples made it our goal to reach out and disciple one other person this year? What if each of us prayed, Lord, help us to meet, greet, or be involved with, or have opportunity to speak to one person this year, not two, not 10, just one, to reach out, teach another person about Jesus, to disciple them, and in the process, be disciples ourselves. What happens if we do these things that Jesus has outlined for us? We become disciples. And here's what matters. Jesus said, if you try to keep your life for yourself, you're going to lose it. But if you become a disciple, if you give your life for my sake, for the sake of the good news, you'll find true life. Let me close by saying this. And hear me in the context of our study over these last two weeks. Nowhere does Jesus describe how to be half-hearted, how to be a half-committed disciple, because in his terms, there's no such animal. They don't exist. It's all or nothing. Notice all the way through, we've talked about a devoted disciple. That's intentional. This is not about us slicing up the pie 
you know, pie graph of our life into segments. Okay, here's the pie piece for my family. Here's the pie piece for work. Here's the pie piece for, whoa, a little small recreation. Here's the pie piece for Jesus. Oh, and sleep too. Yes, gotta have sleep in there. See, if you just allotted a segment of your pie to Jesus, you've missed it. Jesus is the whole pie. He's the whole pie. Our entire life is about being a disciple. All those pieces I mentioned, fully in everything we do, whether it involves family, work, church, all of it, 90% devoted is 10% short. As far as Jesus was concerned, 100% was just normal. That's just the way it's supposed to be. He says, drop your nets, all your nets, and follow me. Don't come dragging pieces of your nets, pieces of it behind you. Don't hang on to some just in case this whole discipleship thing doesn't work out. Drop it all. Leave it behind. Come, follow me. Let's go fishing, he says. I will be your mentor. I will be your guide. I will be your keeper, your helper, your preserver, your shade, your covering when you venture out. Do you know what, people? We're never going to get a better invitation than this. Never, ever. The first disciples knew it was more than just words on a page. They were words to live and, yes, words to die by. What about us? Thanks again for joining us for our weekend message. If you have any needs or prayer requests, please give us a call at 204-326-9020 or email prayer at myselfland.com. Once again, our phone number is 204-326-9020 and the email address is prayer at myselfland.com. 